religion and science. They often seem to be at odds in our society today, but during the height of the golden age of Islam, both things were flourishing in the Islamic empire. It was, of course, an empire of religion built on Islam for the propagation of Islam, but it was also the leading scientific, philosophical, and intellectual superpower of the time. How did it accomplish this, and why did things change? That's what we're going to be looking at today when we take an overview of this conflict or apparent conflict between reason and religion, between revelation and logic. Is there a conflict, and how did various thinkers of the Golden Age work this out? We'll be talking about that today on the Golden Age of Islam, so please stay with us. Okay, welcome back. And once again, I want to thank you all for your kind comments on Facebook and emails. And especially checking in during this time of the uh, pandemic going on, it's always so kind to hear from you. And I hope that this can bring you some sort of uh, diversion and maybe something to keep your mind off it uh, as we go forward. So thank you very much for all your kind support. And if you haven't checked us out on Facebook, please do. Please post your comments. These are actually very important to us to know what it is you want to hear about. So anyway, in our previous episode, we started talking about Ibn Rushd, who is really the last great rationalist philosopher in Islam, and his attempts to battle the theologians, led primarily by al-Ghazali, who was dead by then, but whose view was uh, very prominent, and whose view is eventually going to win out. Now, whether that is the cause of a change in Islamic culture, as some claim, or a result of it, which is more what I think, remains to be discussed in the future. And we will definitely discuss that as we go forward in the next few episodes. But before diving back into Ibn Rushd's arguments, which are really going to constitute the the last defense, the last opposition uh, to the more fundamentalist approach of al-Ghazali, uh, I thought it was important to go back and summarize some of the issues that are going on here. For the one thing, these arguments can get very convoluted and very complicated, and for another thing, they build on each other one after another. You know, if you read about these in a philosophy book, it's hard to understand what they're talking about. Even if you understand it, why, you know, why are these things so important? It seems like they're fighting over very minor points, and people are being declared heretics over tiny things. And that's often because they just jump into the weeds. These are people who deal with this stuff on a, a full-time basis but without looking at the big picture. So that's what I want to try and do today, is take some of these issues, these very esoteric issues, like the relationship between cause and effect and theories of creation, and try and put them into perspective. Why were these such big things? Uh, why was there such a big battle over these things? And why did that battle, the way it turned out, in the opinion of many people, really changed the, the fate of the Islamic world and the balance of power in the world. So I'm calling this episode the Battle of Philosophy and Religion to recap some of the big controversies. And uh, we won't cover it all in this one episode, but I think this will be uh, a good review and also a good introduction if you haven't listened to the earlier episodes. I know the way uh, the podcasts are listed out there. You often don't get them in the right answer, uh, the order that they are are recorded. Okay, so the point that I want to emphasize here, and I will be beating on this continually throughout this this episode. It generally gets lost in a lot of philosophy books. Is that these esoteric arguments are really the tips? of very big icebergs, and they had very big political and legal implications. 
And so we shouldn't think that this is a, an indication of a society that was, you know, just so rich and so luxurious and people had so much leisure time and they were such intellectuals that you know, people were being dragged off and thrown in jail for their theories on where matter came from and so forth. And in a way, that kind of sounds like a really great empire. Wow, wasn't that a great day? Um, that's not exactly the point. The point is a lot of these issues end up being what we call litmus tests. So it's like when someone asks you a question, well, what do you think about this one particular issue? And it may seem like a minor point, but it's actually really the tip of a very big iceberg. And so that's important to bear in mind because nowadays a lot of that has really been lost. And we'll try and tie these points uh, back uh, back to that basis as we go through. Okay, so anyway, we're going to start with just looking at the basic picture here, and let's look at the most basic point, and that is we're talking about a society that was, uh, after all, based on a religion, had a religion as its reason for being. This is Dar al-Islam, after all. The, the purpose of this empire was to spread Islam throughout the world and to, to rule the world in an Islamic fashion, really to bring the rule of God to the world. But at the same time, it was also the most advanced scientific and intellectual power in the world, by far. It was the leader, the superpower. Um, and these things were definitely related. They weren't two separate things. So the dominance in the sciences and in technology helped to spread Dar al-Islam throughout the world. I mean, Islam spread to more people through trade than it did by warfare. And that was because they, they had well-developed trade networks. They had things. They had products that the rest of the world wanted. Uh, and furthermore, Islam, of course, holds that seeking knowledge is a good thing because knowledge was learning about the world and the world was God's creation. Uh, there is the famous hadith of the prophet which says, seek knowledge even as far as China. And uh, if you're in an Arabic class, there's a good chance you see that one up on the on the wall. This is one of the most famous calligraphies we like to put up there because obviously it's saying that going to school is a good thing. So we have to remember that the golden age was a time where these things went hand in hand, despite the ideas that some people have today. Uh, of course, there's always revisionists who go back and... Uh, reinterpret this period and any other period in their own way. And of course, every true believer in any worldview is going to be confident that God's Word and the results of science will never contradict each other. I mean, is this, if this is the absolute truth being conveyed by the God who created the world, obviously it's not going to contradict with science, which is great. But what happens when they do? And we see these situations all the time. Or when they appear to. What happens when your scriptures don't match up with what your science books are saying? And we don't have to go past today to see examples of that. This is something going on in, in our society today, of course. Well, if you can't reconcile these two things, if you can't find a way to bring them together, then obviously you're going to have to deny one of the two sources put it on the back burner. And that would be very high, uh, very bad for a high-tech, high-religion society. They can't afford to do that, right? So, for example, uh, like nowadays, we have conflicts between the Bible saying that the world was created in six days and fossil records saying something else, very different. And these... Uh, course are boiling today. So you have people on both sides heading for the exits. You had a lot of people became atheists or a lot of people downgraded uh, the scriptures to say that, well, the Bible was symbolic and it talks about morals and spiritual things. It's not meant to be a textbook. And then on the other hand, you had a lot of people saying that, well, obviously science is a lie. And if the scientists lied about evolution, then they're probably lying about other things like climate change and vaccinations and so on. 
And it's quite obvious that a society that takes that approach is not going to lead the world in science and technology for very long. So it's this sort of either-or thing, this kind of thing we see with the debates about evolution and climate change in our world today. This is exactly what the Muslim world wanted to avoid. Okay, And they did for a while. But, of course, there were difficulties. So what they want to do is not deny either of these two sources. They want to try and reconcile them. So how do you reconcile these things? How, what do you do if the Quran seems to be saying something different than what science says? Well, the only answer is that we must be interpreting one of them incorrectly. Either the scripture is not meant to be taken literally, or something is wrong in the science. So we could take, for example, one of the hottest controversies of the Renaissance in Europe, which I'm sure everyone has heard this one in school. Uh, the scriptures, the Bible, talks about the sun rising. Well, when astronomy started to show that the earth actually moved around the sun, that was condemned as heresy. Because initially, when people talked about the sun rising, they thought the sun actually moved, that the earth was fixed. I mean, obviously it made sense. The earth was the center of the world, and the sun went around it. Well, we started to get astronomy showing that the earth moved around the sun. Well, that contradicted the Bible, or at least people's interpretation of the Bible, and so, therefore, they were condemned as heretics. And, of course, Galileo is the most famous of these. He wrote, actually, a beautiful defense, arguing that the Bible was not a scientific textbook. It wasn't meant to be read that way, and that the phrase sunrise was meant metaphorically. Well, the Catholic Church at that time certainly wasn't ready for this, so they condemned him as a heretic, and they made him recant it. And he spent the rest of his life in uh, house arrest, but if he didn't recant it, he would have probably been tortured to death by the Inquisition. Well, nowadays, of course, everybody knows that the earth moves around the sun, and nobody can deny that. But we also all say the sun rises, you know. Sunrise today is at 5 a.m., and nobody thinks the sun is the one actually moving. So we all understand that that phrase is, is meant in a certain way. So when we read it in the Bible, nobody has any problem with that. And so this is one way that this thing became reconciled over time. The problem is, of course, it takes a while for people to get used to this. Well, how did they deal with things back in the Middle Ages? Well, we're going to look at some of those controversies. The problem is, when we're talking about a large empire, like the Islamic Empire, and like the caliphates that would eventually develop, there's a lot of division of labor. So although we do make the point, and it's very true, that there is no division of church and state, of religion and secular in Islam, and that is true, there's still people spend more of their time in one thing or the other. I mean, you can be a full-time qadi, you can be an instructor in an Islamic school, you can be a Sufi master, or you could be a, a full-time scientist or translator. So people are going to spend more of their time in one area than the other. Now, the history books, of course, love to point out that all the great scholars that we've talked about here did both, and that is true. Uh, Muslim education was very well-rounded, and you know all education at this time was well-rounded. You were expected to be what we call today a Renaissance person. You weren't expected to focus on one thing the way you do nowadays. But this is a bit misleading, uh, making it sound like they treated all of these things equally. So yes, Ibn Sina was a qualified Muslim jurist, and he didn't train in all of those areas. But his focus was definitely medicine and philosophy. And on the other hand, al-Ghazali did have a first-rate education in math and science, and he understood those things. But his focus, obviously, was religion. And for the most part, people like those two used their knowledge to argue in their specific field. I mean, Ibn Sina used his great knowledge of the Quran and the Hadith to support his arguments in favor of logic and philosophy, for example. So 
it, it is fair to talk about these two sides. We can uh, talk about the rationalist, like Ibn Sina, on one side, and what we'll call the literist um, on the other side. Of course, there's a huge spectrum in between. that's very general. So what are we talking about here? So in these debates that follow, um, we're essentially looking at a tension between uh, the literalists, who are primarily Hanbali jurists, who pushed for a literal reading of the Quran, versus what we'll call the rationalists, people like Ibn Sina. Now, as we've seen during the high point of Muslim scholarship, like during the Beit al-Hikmah, at the time of the Khalif uh, al-Ma'mun, literalists like Ibn Hanbal himself were thrown in jail because they didn't agree with the rationalist view. But that didn't last very long. By the time of Ibn Sina and al-Ghazali, things had definitely swung the other way. Now we've discussed the reasons for this in many episodes. Uh, but essentially, the instability and fragmentation of the empire brought in a lot of military rulers who were a far cry from the intellectuals in the days of Al-Ma'mun. Now, there were still a lot of great patrons of scholarship, and increasingly they would become more in Egypt, Morocco, and Spain uh, than in you know, what is now Iraq, what was once the, uh, the capital of the Abbasid uh, Empire. Okay, so these are a lot of generalizations so far. What are some of the real issues that they're discussing? Well, we'll look at an easy one, and this is one right off the bat, is what we call anthropomorphism, which is a really awful word. Uh, but that means to give something human qualities, like when we say the leg of a chair. Here, of course, we're talking about anthropomorphizing God, that is to give God human qualities. Now, the problem is that the Quran is full of these kind of statements, and the Bible is, is much more so. Um, but we know that God is greater than a human, and particularly in Islam, the idea is about not minimizing God, that God is everywhere. God is completely all-powerful. Okay, so statements that make him seem less, like on the level of a human, are going to be uh, very, very uh, no-go. So what do we do about these statements? When it says God has hands, God sits on a throne, even God's shins are sp specifically mentioned in the Quran. Does God actually have shins? Well, for the Hanbalis, the answer is pretty simple. The book says so, so therefore it's true. Now this will bring up a hundred other questions which really become puzzling. Okay, if God has legs, then what about everything else? Are there, does he have blood vessels and muscles and so forth? If we're taking this literally, and you can see where this starts to get off and can start to sound very blasphemous. Okay, but if we're strictly going by what the book says, um, what does that mean? Well, of course, for the Hanbalis, these are people whose primary concern is getting society to follow Islamic law. So they want strict obedience. They want people who follow the letter of the law, that do what the book says. You don't want people who have a lot of what-ifs and, well, this really doesn't mean what it says. I mean, it says don't steal, but I think what they mean is, you know, don't steal from nice people or something. You don't want that. You want people who follow the rules. And so the Hanbalis are going to be very strict about the literal reading of everything, really. And that includes anthropomorphism. If, if the Quran talks about God's hands and God's shins, then that needs to be taken literally. Well, on the other side of this debate, we have, of course, the rationalists, people like Ibn Sina. Now, they rejected any kind of anthropomorphism. Uh, and we're going to see, when, when we say any kind, that means really, really in a big sense. 
not just body parts like hands and feet, but any sort of concept of time and substance that, that limits uh, a normal mortal being, uh, they're going to object to that. Right? So we even talk about time in relation to God. That's going to seem like anthropomorphizing or making him sound like less than God. Well, it might not be immediately obvious to us why this is such a big issue, right? I mean, if, if they're uh, rationalists, why are they so big about not trying to attribute these human-like, earthly-like attributes to God? But there are several reasons. First off, the obvious one is that if you start to look at the specific instances of anthropomorphism in the Quran, they make medical science hard, right, if you're going to take them literally. Uh, so when we talk about something like the concept of God's eye or God's shins, to someone who is a medical researcher like Ibn Sina, and remember he, he wrote the medical book which was the primary medical textbook for 500 years in Europe and the Middle East, and he's getting very detailed about human anatomy and how it works. Um, you know, he's drawing conclusions about the human versions of these and it's problematic to try and reconcile that with, you know, what is essentially a, a metaphorical concept as he sees it in the Quran. Okay, and I'm really not trying to be offensive, and I, I don't want to offend anyone here by using these kind of examples, but sort of the things that he would bring up that make it sound a little bit ridiculous are exactly the objections that he has. So if we're going to say that... Um, you know, God has legs, for example, and he's studying human legs and how they work, right? You could see how this would start to get negative and it could start to sound disrespectful. For one reason, um, one of the main reasons that we have organs and you know, particular aspects of our physiology as a human is to make up for weaknesses and incapacities that we have, right? We have a liver and we have kidneys to purge out all the toxins that our bodies can't handle. Okay, I, I mean, we have things like this in our, in our bodies that are there because of our limitations. Can we attribute the same thing to a perfect, almighty God? Right? And so this is the objection. This is one of the objections that someone like Ibn Sina would have. Okay. Now, in fairness to him, you know, before we make this sound too stark, many of the opponents of rationalism did try to find a middle ground between these two extremes. Uh, including Al-Ghazali, who is the guy who usually gets blamed for destroying Islamic science single-handedly. I mean, he did say, yes, God has eyes, but they're not like human eyes. That doesn't mean we, we just assume that God has a, a retina and a lens and so forth. This is, a, a, he wouldn't say a metaphor, but this refers to the capability of sight, meaning that God sees. Okay, so he, he would try and reconcile these to some extent, but a strict literalist would not. They're going to push back against that. Now, the interesting part here is, you know, we can look at this back and forth and say, okay, one side is like pushing for a, a literal reading and the other doesn't want to do this. But I think what's often lost here is that the rationalist felt like it were the literalists who were actually blaspheming and disrespecting God and not them. Now, just let me be clear, I don't think any of these people were actually infidels. I don't think either, either side thought less of God than the others. I think they were using the intellectual tools that they had and the way that their, their own minds work to try and put these concepts of infinite uh, power uh, and infinite majesty into some kind of words that they could understand. And it's their own use of the words that tends to trip them up. But uh, just remember, at the, at the end of the day, it's the side whose argument wins out 
who gets access to power. They get access to the khalif. They get the backing of the state. They get the money. And in many cases, uh, very real, the other side ends up in jail. So you, you're going to push your argument as hard as you can. And these things do get fairly uh, vicious. Okay, so as we've seen, both sides really felt that they were being loyal to the, the true intent of the scripture and were interpreting the Quran in the right way. Uh, they just had different views of it. However, one of the problems is that the literalist idea is pretty simple. We believe exactly what the book says. The other guys don't. The rationalist point, which we'll talk about, they believe that they're the ones who are truly honoring God, but it's a much more complicated argument. You have to listen to it. You have to think about it and really say, ah, okay, I get it. Now, some people did. Back in the days of El Ma'mun, uh, he was willing to do that. But, you know, in reality, back then, just like today, a simpler idea has a much better chance of winning. If you can put it in a five-second soundbite, you're probably going to beat somebody who needs 30 minutes to explain their point of view. And so that's essentially what happens. This is why uh, even though people like Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd, who when you read them, you can see these are clearly not heretics. These are not people who are infidels or atheists how they end up getting labeled as heretics and, and, and for hundreds of years they're not read um, because the position they're arguing against is pretty simple. And let's face it, the same thing happens today even in our society. Uh, you know, if the English Bible translators back in the 1600s had understood Hebrew better, we would have no evolution controversy today. Instead, we have creation museums and we have uh, fights over biology textbooks because somebody made a bad translation of the book of Genesis back in the 1600s. Okay, so that's sort of why uh, this controversy is going to be decided the way it is. Although at the time, it was not clear who would end up winning. Okay, we said the literalist position is pretty straightforward on these, but how could rationalists believe that they were the ones who had the more correct view of God? Well, first of all, we have to go back to what is the whole message behind Islam? Why is it different from Christianity? Why do we have a messenger bringing the Quran when we already had the Christian and Jewish holy books? Well, the idea was that those people had diluted the oneness of God. I mean, that was, you can see why, right? They've got saints who can answer your prayers. They've got the Virgin Mary. They've got Jesus who will save you. We've even got priests who can forgive your sins for you. In fact, in, in Christianity, God has delegated a lot of his authority. And particularly for a medieval Christian, it was really hard to get to God. There's so many layers between you and him, you did not approach God directly. Now, of course, Islam is going to reject all of that outright. That's what the call of the prophet is, to take away all these intermediaries. So anything that even sounds a little bit like an intermediary, uh, you're on the road to the idolatry of the Christians. And this is what Islam's whole message is about. Otherwise, it would be the same religion. Now, we're not just talking about the obvious intermediaries, like a priest or saints, or, you know, magic items, um, you know, relics, holy relics, or something like that. I mean, those are the obvious ones. But going even further, anything that could be considered splitting the oneness of God, or diluting the absolute sufficiency and power of God, is seen as a form of this. In, in the eyes of some people, uh, this is idolatry. In the eyes of others, it's kind of getting dangerously close to going along the same lines that the, that the Christians and Jews have gone. 
So, for example, if we're talking about something like God's will, God's mercy. Now, these are attributes of God, but some people, and a lot of folks, have a problem with this because it's like saying there are separate parts of God. Is God's will separate from God's power, separate from God's mercy? Well, of course, everyone would say no. The question is, is using those words and those concepts making it sound that way? And this becomes a very uh, hot debate. And the problem, again, is that the scriptures are full of this kind of talk. So, um, for rationalists, people like Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd, that stuff is metaphor. That's just a way for an average person to get a grasp on concepts that are way beyond their understanding. You know, if we say that the eye of God is upon us, this is a way of saying that God, of course, is everywhere. He's all-knowing. Therefore, he can see, hear everything that we do. It doesn't necessarily mean that God has an eye. That's not necessary. For a literalist like Ibn Hanbal, if the book says it, then it's real. And if you're saying it's not exactly real, then you're going against the book. Okay, so um, this is this is one side of it. So you can see where the rationalists are saying that you guys, you literalists, even though you're so proud of having a literal version of the Quran, you're actually adding these intermediaries between God, or you're dividing God. You're saying that God really does have separate legs and arms and a forehead, and that God actually physically can sit on a throne. And that is minimizing God. That's making him something less than what he is. And it's sounding a whole lot like a, you know, a Christian or Jewish picture of God. Okay, so that's their argument for saying that you guys are the ones with the problems. Well, it doesn't end there. This is a back and forth, of course. So what about the other side? Well, the Hanbalis would say that the rationalists are also adding intermediaries of a different type. And this comes up in one of the biggest issues that they debated, which was cause and effect. Now, both sides would agree that God is ultimately responsible for causing everything in the natural world. Okay, you know, uh, why does wood burn and water doesn't? Well, that's because of God. But the question is, how exactly does he do that? And the classic example they used was burning cotton. This was the example. Now, we all know if you touch a flame to cotton, it would burn. The question is, what's God's role in this? Well, according to rationalists, like the Mutazilites, and pretty much most of the folks working in science, God created the natural laws of the universe and let things run. If God didn't want cotton to burn, it wouldn't. If God wanted rocks to burn, then they would. But God created the world this way, and it's now a natural law. And this is one of the arguments uh, that we often use. Listen to any debate between an atheist and a believer in some religion. They'll say, well, the world has natural laws. Why is it? Why, why is that consistency there? Because God created it that way. And this is great if you're a scientist, because then we can go and study these natural laws. Every science book written during this period begins with, in the name of God, the merciful and compassionate, and then goes on to talk about uh, the laws of science. Okay, so that sounds good. In the opinion of the other side, and this is um, best captured by the, the Asharites, which was Al-Ghazali's group, they did not like this basic framework. They would say that every single time a flame touches cotton, God makes it burn. It's direct causation. Just because it happened one million times in the past doesn't mean it's going to happen 
this time. And this philosophy, by the way, in the West is known as occasionalism, but that name doesn't help because it doesn't really tell you much. But anyway, uh, that was their view. And the issue that they have here is that they would say that the scientific view is putting an intermediary between God and the world, and that intermediary is the natural law. Now, it didn't matter that God created the natural law and that it's his. Again, you have an intermediary going between God and that burning cotton. And that, again, sounds way too much like people saying Hail Marys to the Virgin Mary or uh, confessing to a priest or something like that. It's an intermediary. And so you guys are the one who are creating these. Now, I would like to point out that this whole debate has nothing to do with whether the cotton actually burns or not. You could run a bunch of experiments. You could do this hundreds of times. And whether the cotton burns in each case or doesn't, both sides would have an explanation for that. Because we know in some cases, I mean, you've seen Bear grills out there uh, trying to get, get a fire. Well, he always manages to get the fire going. But, you know, real people out in the woods trying to get a fire going, uh, a lot of times it doesn't work. That doesn't really matter because um, your, your rationalist, your mutazilite, would say there's natural laws that causes the cotton to burn, but it has to have certain things. It has to be dry. It has to have oxygen. It has to have enough of a spark and, you know, whatever. If it's damp, if it's wet, if it's too humid, that's not going to happen. These are just more natural laws all intersecting together. The Asherites would say that God is either causing the action or not causing the action every time. And God is perfect and all-knowing, so he's going to do it at the right time and so forth. So this is really, this, this argument is debating the part of this that we can't see and, and we could never know. Okay, so we may ask the question, who cares? Uh, you know, on... Perhaps until you heard this, you didn't even know this was a debate. I never really, I would say, what's the difference, right? God's ultimately responsible. Um, what's the difference? You know, the process is probably beyond anything we could understand anyway. Well, again, this is one of these tip of the iceberg issues because once you take a position one side or the other on this, then you can carry it a long way, okay? Obviously, if, if you're going to be a scientist, um, being able to write papers about natural laws of the universe is essential to you. I mean, you, you have to be able to put these things down. Um, you, you know, you're not just going to write a, a book that says, you know, most of the time God decides to burn the cotton. So, you know, here it is. No. They're going to try and explain all of these things. So these natural laws are very important to you. Okay. Uh, now, Al-Ghazali, oddly enough, and despite what he's accused of, I mean, he's accused of being a very unscientific guy, but that's not true. Uh, he actually didn't have a problem with most physical sciences. You know, he, he might have an issue with the way you explained it, but he, he, he wasn't against... Uh, doing this kind of observation and experimentation because he'd say what you are doing is reporting on what you see in the world. So if you say that, you know, God usually burns cotton when it's touched with a flame, that's, that's just fine. Uh, but where he really did start to have some issues is when you carry this off into the metaphysical, right? Because if we have a world with natural laws, then we can have natural laws about psychology, about emotions, about sociology, and so forth. Right? We, see, we talk about economics. We have economic laws and so forth. And now you are really starting to you know, create these things that are taking it away from, as he would see, from the, um, the power of God.
So, uh, for Ibn Sina, of course, once God set everything in motion, he would let it run. So we should not expect to see any violations of natural laws. Right? I mean, if, if God creates the rules for when cotton burns, uh, then, then it will. This creates another problem, though, for Al-Ghazali, because this would eliminate the possibility of miracles happening. And we know that in, in the scriptures there are plenty of miracles. And in fact, uh, one of the most studied miracles in the Old Testament now uh, involves something similar to this. This involves the uh, pagan priests were challenged to set wood afire, and the wood was very, very dry. There had been a drought, and they were unable to do it. And then the, the priests of God were to set wood afire, and the wood had been soaked for days in water, and it still burned. Okay, this is one example of a miracle. Well, for someone like Ibn Sina, you know, if you can violate the rules of nature, then that would invalidate the rules of nature. So, in his view, he would say that... You know, these miracles that we see are mostly a metaphor or allegory. Again, they're not meant to be taken literally, but they're meant to teach us, uh, teach us a lesson, per se. Uh, this sounds blasphemous, and again, this is one of the reasons he considered uh, the philosophers to be blasphemous to someone like Al-Ghazali. Right. They would say that because God makes an effect happen every individual time, then there's no problem for, say, someone to walk across water. Because every time someone sinks in the water, God made that happen specifically. So he makes someone else walk across it. Uh, this is not, this is not a, an issue. Okay, so we can see how this cause and effect thing starts to go beyond just the sort of abstract discussions of why does cotton burn, you know, to getting to, you know, what, what do we make of these stories um, that we find in the scriptures. Now, this is another example where when you first hear the argument, it seems pretty straightforward. And then when you listen to both sides, you realize there's a lot more going on than what is uh, first apparent. So this issue of miracles in the scriptures, okay, and um, you know, definitely there are far more of these in the Bible that are described uh, than in the Quran, but it's still, it's still an issue. So when we have what seems to be a violation of the natural laws, and the scriptures are saying this, well, for the rationalist to come and say, well, that's just metaphorical. Okay, that is just symbolic. It's not meant to be taken literally. You could see where uh, someone like a Hanbali would get upset and say, okay, you're essentially denigrating the scripture. You're saying that where the Quran does not agree with your science book, then we're going to say the Quran is the one that's not meant to be taken literally. And even though you say you're not putting it down, uh, you essentially are. Okay, so it's easy to understand their position. Now, the thing is that someone like Ibn Rushdi or Ibn Sina, they don't come back and say, hey, we're sorry, you know, that's the way it is. Science has to take priority. Now, nowadays, a lot of people say that. Okay, but they wouldn't say that, and they honestly didn't believe it. They would come back and say, no, we are the ones who have the, the better view of God, and actually your literal reading is the one that's blasphemous to God. Now that sounds a little bit odd, and you really have to think about it. Well, how do you explain that? And if you read their books, which are really convoluted and not easy to follow, but if you read them, uh, you say, okay, I get where you're coming from. Problem was, not a lot of people did this, and as time went on, fewer and fewer people ended up doing this, and so you can see why they lost out. But anyway, how are they going to, to address this? Okay, so let's take the back to the issue of the burning cotton okay 
um, let's say God burns the cotton 99 times, but does not burn the cotton on the 100th time. Well, Al-Ghazali would say this is no problem. It's what you would call a miracle, but it's what we call, you know, God just acting each individual time. Well, if we look at this from a logical perspective, in the view of a rationalist, they would say there must be some reason why God only burned the cotton 99 times and on the 100th time he didn't do it and all the conditions were the same. Well, did God change his mind suddenly? Well, that obviously can't be. He's all-knowing, right? God is not limited by time. He knows everything that's going to happen before the world even was. He's always right. So God wouldn't change his mind. Now, of course, in, if, if you read the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, God is changing his mind all the time. But this, again, is one of those things that is seen as something that the Jews let slip in uh, that definitely shouldn't be there. In the very unified version of God that we have in Islam, that doesn't happen. God is not going to change his mind. He's not going to change his behavior. And he's not going to cave into influences in the world. So if something was different in that 100th time, are you saying that that has influenced God to change his behavior? Hmm. So in each one of these cases, they would say, okay, that you are presenting a weaker version of God. So now, of course, the Christians and the Jews, they do this all the time, but we don't want to fall into the same traps as they do. So, for example, uh, Christians have Jesus coming and performing all sorts of miracles. Uh, I mean, some of them seem to be just for people to watch, like him walking across the water or turning water into wine. And these are to convince people that he really is God. And they're fine with that. But in the, in the eyes of the rationalist interpretation of Islam, this is bad because they're saying that God essentially has to change his behavior. That God has decided that when someone steps on water, they sink. But now he's going to do it differently because he wants to prove to a certain group of skeptics who are watching that he's real. Well, that, in their mind, sounds like a very weak God who is reacting to essentially pressure from other people. He's doing this to prove to people uh, that he's real. And in their mind, they see this as an example of weakness. And, you know, all the Muslims would agree that, yeah, the, the Christians uh, and the Jews, they, they got off track on this. They believed in a lot of stuff like that. Um, but we don't. Well, you know, Ibn Rushdi would come back and say, well, you're essentially doing the same thing by having this literal reading of things like uh, miracles. Okay, so now uh, we can see where both sides think that they're wrong. Okay, now in, in my mind, I, I would just say I don't think that either one of them is really um, denigrating God here. I, I think that they're both explaining things the best way that they know how with their own ways of looking at the world. But, it, but they certainly weren't cutting each other any slack with this. And as I say, the simpler explanation, the one that you don't have to sit down and explain doesn't mean what it sounds like, that's the one that ends up winning out. Now, in fairness, I mean, if you feel a little bit sorry for the rationalist, um, in, in fairness, we have to realize they pretty much did set themselves up for a fall. Okay. Ibn Sina, in particular, made it very clear that there were two kinds of people in the world. There were those people who could understand really detailed, complex arguments, like himself, of course, and the masses. And, you know, the masses just couldn't understand the kind of stuff that we study. So prophecy and revelations, like the Quran, was for the masses. 
because I mean them you just had to tell them what to do and you had to give them really simple pictures so uh, you know you had, you had to say the hand of God will do this and so forth because they had to be able to understand it so um, God sits on a throne in the Quran because people in the Middle Ages knew that rulers sit on thrones and if someone's on a throne you better do what they say because they have a lot of power and therefore that's the way they explain it. Now really smart folks like him understand that this is a metaphor and in fact the metaphor isn't even meant for smart guys like him because they understand the reality behind it and they understand it's even more impressive right that God is even more powerful and more important than any guy sitting on a throne than any real king and so see therefore it's those of us who understand this symbolic metaphoric thing we're the ones who really understand God and I mean we saw the example of this uh, the classic was in the episode when we talked about the book Hai Ibn Yaqthan which was uh, by Ibn Tufail who is you know really a, a mentor to Ibn Rushdi and he's really the guy in between uh, Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushdi this was the classic picture and if, if you remember that episode it's about a baby who ends up on a deserted island one way or the other and all by himself figures out everything with I mean, nothing he's got no input uh, no books no nothing he figures out everything in the world because he's so smart and you can do that and that was their thought that it's logically rationally out there for a smart person to think of but then you remember what happens at the end of that book Hai, suddenly gets discovered when he's 50 years old tries to pass on what he knows to the masses and they just absolutely don't get it right because the 99.9% .9 out there are not capable of this kind of thinking uh, and for a while for a while this point of view really held the ear of rulers who considered themselves extremely educated and cultured uh, and so um, they supported them and this is why El Ma'mun threw the Hanbalis in jail or he threw Hanbal in jail and people who thought like him okay so again you know don't feel sorry for the rationalists don't think they were nice guys uh, they were pretty arrogant pretty elitist Ibn Sina was known to be a very arrogant elitist guy and to a large extent he did conduct himself like he was above all this this law stuff that's meant uh, for the riffraff I mean he, he was known to be um, you know quite into partying and, and, and uh, drinking and booze and he definitely considered himself above others you know these rules about drinking and alcohol that's you know, that's meant for the masses because they can't handle it they don't have the wisdom that we do and you know that approach was popular it was popular with uh, rulers who shared his opinion but as time goes on his words are going to be read more and more by people in power who tend to be a lot more like the masses in terms of education and they're gonna look at them like hey you're just using this as an excuse So it is important to point out also that there were a spectrum of opinions in between these. There weren't just absolute literalism and complete interpretation. Even Al-Ghazali himself admitted that parts of the Quran were intended to be read not literally but symbolically or metaphorically and these include parts like the anthropomorphisms talking about the throne or God's hands and so forth the difference between them of course is where these lines were drawn exactly what should be taken literally and how far are we able to exert the interpretation and 
but also how do you do that? What do you do when you come to some of these passages? Well, as we've seen, for the rationalists, the answer is very much using your own reason. And this, of course, again is embodied in someone like Hay ibn Yaqthan, someone who uses his intellect to figure out what this means. So when you see a passage talking about God sitting on a throne, you use your intelligence and you interpret this and, and you get what's actually going on. Now, Al-Ghazali is perhaps best known as the defender and the promoter of Sufism, the, the mystic sense of Islam. And he is especially seen as the one who really justifies this, gives it a very solid uh, legal and theological background. And this is part because of his life. As we talked about uh, in the episode about him, he went through a period where he was very discouraged and had a lot of questions. And for him, withdrawing, uh, going to Mecca and withdrawing and going into this mystical experience was a life-changing experience for him. And that's how he really came to the epiphany of understanding these things. So this very much marks a uh, sort of an intersection in the road where you come to this point of, okay, we, we understand that there are some things that are uh, beyond our understanding when we talk about God sitting on a throne or using his hand and so forth. Most people are going to say that, I mean, this is not meant to be taken anatomically. But what do we do? Well, the rationalist says this is meant for smart people like us to use our intellect because we understand what this metaphor means. The Sufis, who represent a much larger uh, portion of the population, say, no, this is where we are illuminated by direct contact with God. And Sufism uses a lot of these images. In fact, poetry is a very big part of Sufism, uh, where there are a lot of analogies between uh, the relationship to God and relationship to earthly things that are not meant to be taken literally, but is meant as part of your experience. And we, we see this in every religion, right? We have meditation, we have people having mystical experiences in Christianity, and so forth. But this is very much a dividing line. And someone like Ibn Sina would say, and he does say, well, this is attended for different parts of the population. Sufism is very popular with the masses, and it's targeted at the masses. Okay? They're not going to do the sort of rationalism that we are. So this is where the divide is. And although Al-Ghazali is not completely against using rationalism, I mean, he would do it himself, but... What he would say is that this opens the gate. If you're going to say that people should use their own rational interpretation of the Quran and the Hadith, well, then that means they're going to be rationally interpreting the law themselves. And we can't have a society where everybody is coming up with their own version of the law. And, I mean, we see how easily people twist uh, religious laws for their own purposes. They can even look at a guy like Ibn Sina, who, uh, you know, is the height of rationalism, but he's basically out living a wild, partying life, breaking a lot of the rules because he uh, thinks that he has he's above them with his interpretation. And so they, um, people like Al-Ghazali, they're really trying to avoid this. They want to maintain order in the society. And you can't have this sort of everybody having their own interpretation of things and that's the way they see opening up the door. Um, of course Al-Ghazali was dead by the time Hai Ibn Yaqthan was written but he would look at something like that as saying you know what happens if you have a society of people who all think they are Hai Ibn Yaqthan and have figured out the rules of right and wrong on their own. Well, that isn't going to work too well. So this tension is definitely there. There are, however, very strong and influential people who believe in the absolute literal interpretation of 
the Quran. And so they will even disagree or part ways with Al-Ghazali, who's trying to kind of work a middle position. Um, I mean, it's not exactly a middle position, but he's saying that, yes, you can use rationalism, but you have to be very careful about it, and you guys are not being careful. There are those who are absolutely uh, literalist about this. So Ibn Hanbal, of course, the namesake of the Hanbali school, his interpretation of this, things like uh, anthropomorphisms in the Bible, where it says God has a hand. Now, he's not going to claim that that hand is anatomically the same as a human hand, but what he would say is, as much information as you have been given, that's what you're to take. We are not supposed to ask the what and the how. When it talks about God's hand and what it does, we just take that at the value and we don't ask these questions of does this hand have blood vessels and nerves. To, to even be asking that, you are being blasphemous. If God wanted you to know that, he would have conveyed this. We don't ask about the how it works, which is essentially what you guys are doing or you're critiquing. Um, and this trend continues. It, it grows stronger uh, throughout history. Ibn Taymiyyah becomes a proponent of this, and it's definitely represented in the Salafi trend, uh, the very literalist literalist trend, excuse me, we see in Wahhabism uh, even today. So the, this traditionalism, this literalism is definitely in existence. And there is the whole spectrum in between. But what I would say in, in final about this sort of debate is that most people, the masses of people, which again, this is whom we are trying to regulate, you know, the masses of people at that time were pretty much like people today. Um, you can find millions of people, and actually it's been, um, you know, surveys have shown that many, many tens of millions of people in the United States, for example, will say, yes, I believe the Bible literally means exactly what it says. Now, if you were to get them in a debate on certain questions, okay, um, you know, how what does this mean um, when it talks about Moses being put into a cleft and covered by God and seeing God's backside but not his front? What exactly does this mean? You, how on earth do you take this literally? Well, if you really pressed them, they wouldn't be able to answer this. But for the vast majority of people, this is more an emotional thing to say, yes, I believe it literally. And they're not really thinking about the details. And that is, again, the way here. Somebody like Ibn Sina or his later uh, progeny like Ibn Rushdi is going to sound somewhat dangerous because he's talking about interpreting the Quran on your own or in according to logical rules developed by pagan Greeks. And that just sounds bad. I mean, if you really follow him through, you find that, okay, he's not really saying things that are, that are that bad or that dangerous. They don't sound blasphemous, but in a society, this really uh, resonates badly. And as it becomes a society that is involved in religious wars against crusaders, against the, seeing their home country of Spain being reconquered, uh, supposedly, by Christians from the north, the tolerance for this sort of thing goes down. So that, in brief, for today is a bit of a sketch of the two positions that we're describing here. Now, we're definitely not done with this discussion because we haven't even touched on the most controversial points between them, and that's what we're going to do next week. And those are really the points that deal with eternity. Okay, these folks are having a hot enough discussion talking about cause and effect, why cotton burns. Okay, it really, really gets intense when they start to talk about eternity, the eternity of the world, the eternity of the Quran, which are, are not viewed the same way. These are the points. The nature of God's knowledge, what does God know and not know. Now that might seem like a simple one, but this becomes another biggie, and this becomes one of the points where the philosophers are condemned as heretics. So in our next lesson, inshallah, if you uh, uh, 
follow us, uh, we will touch on these issues, particularly the eternity of the world and the nature of creation, and see how these really become the litmus tests. This is really the ones where Al-Ghazali in his book is able to say that these people are heretics. They are infidels which is the, the harshest condemnation you can lump on a person. They are infidels, and it's because their view on eternity and creation is just absolutely um, forbidden. It's incompatible. And, of course, the philosophers are going to say, no, you're the one that's wrong. And so that's the big debate, and we're going to take that debate up and try and make sense of it, of what is a very, very difficult debate. We're going to try and simplify it uh, in our next episode. So we hope you will join us then. In the meantime, again, thank you for all your support, all your kind ratings, all your kind comments. It's just very encouraging, particularly at this time when we all need to lift each other up and, you know, look at the, the good things that society has done and the achievements of human civilization, which I hope is what we're doing here. So thank you very much again for your kind attention. I hope to see you next time. Shukran jazilin wa ma'al salama. Thank you.